Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is Esther Wheeler. Esther is a driven endurance athlete, or as she calls herself, an accidental racer. And today we'll get a fascinating glimpse into the mind of an endurance athlete and how she manages herself before, during, and after an event. And there are some great lessons that we can apply here across different paddling disciplines and in life in general, even if we're not racing. Before we get to our chat with Esther, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. You'll find everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries. It's all in one place. And if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. And Level 6 continues to be a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we've got a special offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, Visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST to check out for 10% off your order. Enjoy today's episode with Esther Wheeler. Hello, Esther. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Ah, wonderful. I really appreciate your time. So tell us, who is Esther Wheeler? <laughs> Starting with the good questions already. <laughs> uh, well, I've been many things, I suppose, but what I am now is... An adventure endurance canoe and kayak racer. Taking a bit of a journey to that, I think, through... I at once called myself the accidental uh, or the surprised racer. And I think that's <laughs> still a bit true. Really? Now, why is that? Well, I started doing uh, canoe and kayak racing primarily once I moved to Australia about six and a half years ago. Right. It's a big cultural thing here. With no... Real background, except a, a previous Yukon River quest, which had been more of an expedition adventure than a, a race. And I, I was constantly surprised that I'd find myself in all these races. Short races in outrigger, canoes or dragon boats. Uh, longer kayak races, and then obviously I moved into ultra-endurance. And I'm one of these people on the street that you'd never say was a racer. I'm not tall and muscled and look like I'm going to be any good at anything. So I think that was always a surprise. And then... I move from just someone who completes things to someone who races them. Okay. And I'm still surprised at where I am. <laughs> so you said um, accidental after having done the Yukon River Quest. So in 2017, you became the first woman to finish the Yukon River Quest solo in a canoe. How did that That's come correct. about? Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So there's a story about that. I must have read about the Yukon River Quest in... National Geographic or something. So I didn't know how to paddle at that point. Uh, I almost drowned in a rafting incident in Nepal. So at 30, I decided I should learn to paddle and go and race the Yukon River Quest. So I did. I joined a club in London, Tower Hamlets Canoe Club, and learned to paddle. And then I was fully committed at that point, I think 10, 12 years ago. I thought, I'll do it on my own. But then I found someone who wanted to do the race with me. So I did it my first Yukon River Quest Tandem Canoe. And the minute I saw the river in Whitehorse, I knew I'd come back, and I knew I wanted to be solo. It was just quite hard to do it, because getting a canoe, physically getting the canoe to do it, was a challenge. You couldn't hire solo boats. So I just had to get to know people a bit, 
and then I don't know why. I really, in the back of me, don't know why I wanted to do it solo, except I knew I could. And I like doing things on my own. I like the outdoors, like walking, hiking. Um, I'm quite introverted in some way, so it suits me. And then I just, I guess, jumped at it and did it. So why the uh, why the Yukon River Quest? Why, what was that about that race that attracted you? I can't. I, I I did actually a couple of years ago go through my emails and go through the social media and see if I could find an early trace of why on earth that race. <laughs> and I couldn't find one. Um, but I like adventures. Years back, I did one of those ocean crossing races. You know, a big sailing boat. So there's something about me that gets restless and wants to be doing things that are in the middle of nowhere, not just doing an ordinary race. And then the, the friend I met in the Tower Hamlets Canoe Club already knew about the race, so that's cemented it, I suppose. And who doesn't want to spend time in Canada? And once you've joined a paddling community, then you've got one around the world. So it's luck, partly. Okay. And then once I knew about it, I just kept wanting to go back. Spell of the Yukon, I think it's called. <laughs> so tell us about that first Yukon River Quest. What was that like? Well, I'd only just moved to Australia a few months before. So I didn't have a canoe here. No one here did that sort of racing. So I trained for the canoe on a solo outrigger, which anyone who knows things about it knows that that's not the best way to train for the, uh, what is then a sit-and-switch canoe. I was really lucky to have been able to borrow the canoe of the race organiser, Peter Coates. So I got to Whitehorse, just getting a canoe I'd never even seen before. I also did it without a real support crew, which is not advisable. All right. Because my friends here didn't really know me enough by then. So that was a crash course in what to do or not to do. I remember being so scared on the start line, I didn't know if I could get in the boat. So there's everyone there, people who don't know. It's a Le Mans running start to 200 metres or something to the boat. Once I set off, I was fine, but oh my gosh. And that's the race that turned me into a surprised racer, really. Because I was paddling down the first section, following another canoeist called Mr. Bill. And he got a current on the side just after the Takini River. I can still see it in my head now. And I missed it. He gained a good 150 metres on me. And I remember being really annoyed that <laughs> I didn't know enough to paddle that well. Like, I couldn't read the river enough. And then... So many things happened in that race, including me jumping out to uh, go to the bathroom because I was tired of doing it in the boat and getting stuck in quicksand and almost losing the boat. Many things happened that were stupid on my part from decision-making. But I, when I finished, it was almost uh, anti-climax because I hadn't done as well as I wanted to from a time perspective. I knew I'd made some mistakes, but I'd never done a race on my own before. I'd never paddled solo and not seen anybody. So it was a very steep learning curve mentally not so much physically but mentally it was a huge learning curve and then obviously I just wanted to go back and do it faster and better so you did that that race that un that solo race largely unsupported mm, yes okay and over what time period how long was the race so it took me 61 hours and a bit now did you have to carry much uh, much gear with you yeah, you have to carry all your gear with you. Uh, you have a mandatory set of safety gear, stove, pots, things like that, just in case you get stuck. Because rescue isn't guaranteed within a, a day, really, depending on where you are and what's happened to you. So you have to carry some emergency gear like that. You have to carry extra clothes and all your food. Now, you do have one resupply at Carmax, which is about 24. Well, for me, I think it was actually 26 hours. 
And so I sent bags ahead with things that I needed. And I managed to find someone who had a cooler box and I put my things in there. So I got a resupply at that point. And I had got someone to put a tent up for me so I could sleep, that sort of thing. So I had... And the volunteers are so good. When they find out no one's around, they help you so much. So although I didn't have pre-planned support, by the time I got to that stop, there were people around who were happy to help me and look after me and make sure I got back into my boat in time and that sort of thing. It's not quite the same as having your friends around who know you and will look after you in a different way. But it's still invaluable having those volunteers. And then after that, there's a second stop that the race organisers put on. So there's some food there and, and a bit of water, but there's no support as such. Okay. Now, but in terms of gear, you just you're, it's a 62-hour event. Uh, you're probably not carrying that much more than you would carry on a, on a tour, on a multi-day trip. No. Okay. Uh, in fact, you're... No, and ideally you carry yeah, less. Yeah, light and uh, fast. Since I've done it. Exactly. Okay. I wasn't as light as I should have been. <laughs> uh, the canoe was a bit heavier, but it was a great canoe. It ran really well. And some of my gear was a bit heavy. Since then, I've invested a lot more money into really lightweight gear and, and really shave that off because it makes a difference. Now, it's interesting. You you mentioned it. Uh, 400, 444 miles, is that right, for the Yukon River Quest? Mm, yes. Right, so here you are doing a 444-mile race that's uh, 62 hours long, and you find yourself annoyed that somebody was able to get 150 meters on you at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a racer mindset. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and I think I didn't know I had that. And since then, it's become more and more honed, that race sense, because I went back and did it solo again last year uh, with an intent to get the record. It was obviously a very high water year, so I did. So I was 10 hours faster. Wow. Uh, and I raced every stroke of that race. Congratulations. So the current record holder. Yes, which is nice. Now, there's a, um, if I'm not mistaken, a famous section, uh, is it Five Fingers, is that what's called? Mm. So yes. a rapids section. Tell us about that. So that can be anything. It's always a section that every race is nervous about. And they race organizers are brilliant. They have a safety boat there. So in reality, you don't need to be nervous from a, a life-saving perspective because they're brilliant. Those volunteers are helping you out. But everyone's nervous. So my first solo year, I ended up going down backwards, which is not very common. But I think I was so nervous that I was paddling so hard, I actually cut across an eddy line and... Then uh, I spanned myself into a rock, and the only way out of the eddy I felt safely was to go down backwards. I didn't get a drop of water on the deck. Okay. I just bounced down, and the, the canoe just looked after me. Um, so I uh, no issues, which was very different from last year, which was phenomenally high, terrifying, and I flipped halfway down, yeah. as did many other people. So you've got to be respectful of it, but and we're all going to be fearful of it when you do it, but you don't need to be. Like, if something happens there, it's the safest place on the river for something to happen. If something happens in other parts where there's no safety boat, you're in much more trouble. How long is that section? So if it's a high water year, you often get rapid like conditions a mile above it. But the actual section itself isn't very long. It's a few hundred meters. I've, I've read about it before and I haven't really seen distances, so that kind of gives you an idea of just... A... How long you uh, how long you might be in for it? So those uh, that solo experience and those initial experiences, where did that lead you next? Well, it led me to just want to be able to race harder. Whatever I picked after that, I wanted be to be able to be a better performer. 
which at the time I don't think I was. So where it really taught me is to go back and learn some more, more techniques, go back and focus in a canoe uh, or a kayak. I like both of them. And spend time in different conditions, do shorter races as well. Um, and in, in Australia, in, based in Sydney, it's really easy to do that. There's lots and lots of them. Make more connections with people around the world to try and look at what other races might be there. And where it really pushed me is realising that the physical part of the race wasn't that hard for me. You can train for that. And I was quite comfortable in what training for that meant. Where I really needed to do more work is to have a mindset and a practice that was resilient and adaptable. Because I can be quite fixed and have a plan. And then if the plan goes wrong, what do I do? So I actually spent quite a bit of time... Uh, just reading like, sports performance books, I suppose you'd say. I ended up working with a mindset coach, Adelaide Goodeva, performance mindset coach. By I came across her, I think, on Facebook, like some of the things she said, and we did some work together, which I found really interesting from a personal perspective because it turns out the two sides of me, the really logical thinking side, which is very helpful for work, and then the very high risk level that I seem to be comfortable with didn't always work together. So working with Adelaide was a really interesting insight into myself and how to use every part of me to drive a better performance. And that led to me training differently, getting much, much fitter. It meant last year when I did my solo You Can You Can't River Quest for the second time, six weeks later I went off to try and do a trail running marathon well, it was a bit more than the marathon. It was 118 miles, but I only managed... Sorry, 118 kilometres, but I only managed about 48. Okay. And that's where it started to lead me into I can do multiple ultras in a season, I can do different types, and I can really make a decision as to almost a second career of ultra racing. So what were those aha moments, those, those things that led you to those realisations? Well, one of them was... My dad passed away a few years ago, and because of the things that were happening, I had struggled to go back and see him, because obviously we're in different countries. And I ended up having to make some difficult decisions to go back for a few months and, and see him, which I was able to. And I think that also prompted me to, and he was a great age at 98, but I started to realise then that if I put more effort and spent more time focusing on being skillful uh, in the in the types of puddling I wanted, but also better at the type of training and, and life that was then around it. Effectively, I suppose, striving for excellence. If that was something that would work for me to be able to do, almost deliver a better performance for myself, I'd be happier. And my work actually has a very high focus on excellence as a value. And so the two things came together. One, I had got a new boss here who had a different attitude and was very open and very supportive. And in fact, work's been incredibly supportive and champions my adventures. And I talk to people at work about mindset and performance. So that those two things with, with dad and with work were two moments that I think actually have made me a much better racer, but without me at the time realising it. They were just part and parcel of day to day. But looking back, those are two significant moments, I think, for me. I think as well... Finishing last year, Yukon River Quest, which was uh, very challenging from a high water level perspective, that the fact that I could do that 
and not many people did. Show that definitely showed me that I could do things that I didn't know I could do, and if I could do that, I could do anything. Tell me about mindset for miles. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a play on word on the fact, I suppose, that I do races that are miles and miles. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a, a crucial aspect for me to have as a positive part of my arsenal as a racer is that your mindset's going to change over anything that's a, a long period of time. And you've got to be able to accept that it's going to change and then learn the cues from yourself and be able to say, okay, there's a certain point that it's just going to be hard. And it's not about having a strong mind. It's not about constantly being positive, which is uh, maybe something we hear people talk about. And it's not about always being up. It's about having something that is practical right there and then. And that's relevant to the whatever struggle you're going through. In trail running, I follow someone, Courtney DeWalter, a phenomenal, probably the world's best trail runner, who talks about being in the pain cave and recognising it and welcoming it and going through it. And I think that's part of my approach to mindset for miles is you're going to be in a bad place and potentially for quite a long time. But it it's about turning that around and saying, well, this isn't a bad place. I know it was coming. I'm ready for it. And this is how I will move through. And then having techniques that help when when something um, comes up or you're you're tired or whatever it might be, because that's going to happen. It's almost accepting them as inevitable and then just moving past them. So what might be one of those techniques that you use to help you cope with adversity? I think it's called, officially called the pause and perform play, something Adelaide taught me. So the key is when you're doing something that isn't helping you forwards to try and ensure that you can stop that. For me, what I just say is out loud, I'll be like, stop. Because it's a jolt to something that you're thinking. Well, that's the intention anyway. And generally speaking, it works. Because you have taught yourself beforehand. So I practice these in training. I don't wait to my race. Even if I don't always need it. Or I'll do a training session when I'm really, really tired. So the training physically is pointless. I'm going out there just to practice my mind techniques. So that's a really strong one for me. And the other second strongest one is asking the question, is this helping? Uh, so as an example, it's, a, it's hot and you're paddling through and at some point you're probably getting a bit bored and tired and you maybe don't want to eat. And often these things coalesce together. And if I just say, is this helping you? And the answer is always no. <laughs> and then it's, well, what would help me? What would help me more now? But like, okay, take a bite of food. And then five minutes later, you probably have to say the same thing to yourself. Those two are the most powerful ones for me. The simple stop and then asking a question, is this helping? How do you know when to ask yourself those two questions or when to, when to tell yourself to stop and when to ask yourself, is this helping? Yes, because sometimes you're not in the state. You're just tired and hot and you, you can't move past it. Uh, so I think identifying beforehand when is this likely to happen? Which is easier if you've had experience at a particular distance or a type of race because you're like, oh, it'll hit after 10 hours or it'll hit after 40 hours or whatever it might be. But you can still have a good gauge of when it's going to hit. I mean, you could write things on a boat, for example, or on maps or, or, or alerts. For me, I always, I've learnt now there's a sense beforehand. I fidget. You're paddling along and usually you're paddling pretty steadily you don't stop but if I get to the point where 
I find myself reaching for food or shifting my seat position a lot, or stopping to just double-check the GPS or the map. I find myself doing a lot of little tasks that maybe only take 10 seconds, but you're not paddling for those 10 seconds. Once that happens, I know I'm in a place where I need to stop. That's something that that's a, a tactic that I've been using, and so I need to stop myself. Because if I don't, I will get to the point when I just slow down or take a rest, and I'm trying to avoid doing all of those things. Now, is the purpose of the stop just to remind yourself, refocus on what you're doing? Yes. Yeah, it is. And if you employ it early enough, then it works just like that. You don't need to do anything else. So what do you find to be the toughest part of endurance sports? The aftermath. Really? (laughs) Coming down off races, I have always found this astonishingly difficult. I don't know if there's an official term, but like post-race blues, I suppose you hear it talked about, I find them incredibly difficult to deal with, physically and mentally. I often put weight on after races for no reason. I'm not as good with my friends afterwards. And that relates to, I have a particular way of preparing for endurance races, maybe because I'm an introvert, but I train on my own you don't need to train on your own the whole time just because you're doing solo races. You can train with your friends. But I like training on my own. So I often enter a race in quite an isolated state, which I think helps me perform really well. But then the negative impact of that is I have a really bad time afterwards. They're the, t- they're the things I find hardest about it. Hmm. How do you bring yourself out of the post-race depression? That's a good question. Last time it took me probably six months which I think is a six months to well, five months too long. So from that, I took quite a lot of learnings. I went to talk to some of my friends. I've got a a weight trainer, Chris, and we'll talk to him. And actually, I didn't talk about training or anything. I just talked about me and some of the, the traits that I have. So one of the ways is when I train now, I have to be really careful and I need to train more with other people because it, that doesn't impact my physical training. There's no reason I can't train with other people. So doing more of that before going into races now is really important for me. As is trying to spend more time with friends, making sure I block time out. So when I enter the endurance race, I'm not as isolated. And then afterwards, one of it is find something else to do and to do quickly. And that could be just to refocus into work. It doesn't have to be into races. So this time, for example, I have really focused on work and that's made it much easier to integrate back in. Uh, and then uh, uh, something I find hard from an Australian perspective is my longer races are in the Northern Hemisphere summer. So I race all the way through until about July, well, or, or I have in the last the last few times. Mm-hmm. And the season in Australia starts in September. So I often work, just run from one thing to another. So taking very specific breaks afterwards, whether that be not getting into the boat or a refocus on weight training or walking or swimming, but being really, being more deliberate about my recovery it is key, really key, I think. All right. So those techniques that you mentioned, the stop and is this helping, I mean, those, those things can be applied not only to a racer, but to a, to a distance touring sea kayaker. Um, same thing with your, your post-race depression. You know, you put all your time, all your energy, all your focus into that specific event. And I would imagine that after that event occurs, or for an expedition paddler after that expedition occurs, now you're thinking, well, I'm lost. What do I do? Where do I go next? And you know, what I heard you mention was find a purpose. 
find something you can really dive into, whether it's work or friends or something to that after the fact um, that really helps you continue to maintain a focus on something. You're absolutely spot on because if you've done this sort of endurance training and then racing, you've had a, I certainly have quite a singular mindset focus. Your life has been oriented around the type of training or logistics or whatever it is you needed to do. And so losing that structure, for me, isn't beneficial. I know some people are great, they come off a race and all they want is unstructured, running around, lying down, whatever they want to do. That really doesn't work for me. Because then I become lost, as you said. I have to have almost the other structured recovery piece. (laughs) You mentioned training a couple of times in there. So tell us about your training regimen. So the more races I, the more paddling races I do, the less paddle training I Mm. do, which has become interesting. But I suppose once you keep a base of endurance up, you don't have to work so hard to get it back. So uh, that's a positive. I used to do hours and hours of paddle training a week. Uh, And now, even when I'm going into a big race, I'm probably not doing 10 hours, probably maybe 10 hours paddle training a week, unless I do a really long run, but I do very few of those anymore. When I switched to do trail running as well, because I hadn't done that before, in the months, probably the two months before I hit those races, I was on 20 hours training a week, which included weight training, walking, cycling, so the whole thing. That's the most training I've ever done before. And I was at my fittest and I performed my best, but it was really difficult to maintain. I'm much better from a maintenance point of view at, say, 12 to 14 hours a week. And that's doable with work, social life and everything else. I try and weight train at least once or twice a week. I know I'm supposed to do more, but I never fit it in. (laughs) And I really enjoy lifting weights, which is why I have a coach for this, Chris, because he helps me lift heavier weights and do different things that I wouldn't do in a gym on my own. I like training and I will put in more than one type of paddle training. So if my race is in canoe, I'll make sure I do something in kayak or stand-up paddleboard. Not necessarily with the aim of fitness, but just different body movements. Last year I took up yoga, which is actually really helpful because as I get a bit older and my hips get a bit stiffer, and I'm terrible at yoga, but it's incredibly important. So I'm spending more time now one to two hours a week, trying to do it regularly every other day, just for short periods of time, stretching and movement and mobility. That's become much more of a focus in my training. I learn something new every year about myself and what works. I used to just do really repetitive low bass. And now I've been studying, it's Stephen Seiler, the uh, based in Norway, endurance coach, or scientist rather, and a few others. So I do a good 85% of my training at low bass, but then I really try and put some high intensity work in right at the top end um, where my heart rate monitor doesn't even work anymore sort of thing. So I, I do that tradition, not quite the traditional 80-20, but I do that. I really work on staying in a lower heart rate zone. I only just get to my zone two if I'm paddling. I never push up to that top of zone two piece in training at all. I almost religiously avoid that middle bit with heart rate. And I don't train to heart rate anymore, I used to, but as I study it and learn about it more, I'm much more comfortable trusting myself in my training now. The key, I think, for me is just variety that keeps it fun and interesting, but covers all the bases of endurance intensity and weights and mobility. I mean, I think as an endurance racer, you know, there's no question you need to be 
physically prepared. You need to be physically fit uh, for the activity. But the mindset um, is is as much, if not more. Your your mind will take you out of the game much faster than your body will. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I did my first endurance races when I was, I would have been close to ninety eight, hundred kilos probably, and I'm quite short, so I was short and round. I mean, I've always been strong muscular wise, mm-hmm. so I wasn't quite as round as that suggested. But uh, and I'm not that much lighter now but I'm in a very different shape based on training but mindset I think you have to have a deliberate practice you're, you're absolutely right John you can't just absorb it by doing more training because then you just train your mind to train and I wanted to make sure that I trained to perform so I would do specific training practices that were centered around how my mind was going to cope with something rather than what my body was going to do how many uh, Yukon River quests have you completed? Five. Five, okay. And then you've also done the Yukon 1000, correct? Yes, just finished. Ah, congratulations. And that was, Thank what, you. seven days, nine hours, 59 minutes? Spot on, yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did that race, di- is that your longest race? Yes. Okay. How did that race differ, other than, other than 654 miles, whatever it is? Math's not math hard. <laughs> yeah, it's a really different race, and I'd say it's not as hard as the Yukon River Quest solo for sure. That that the quest, if you do solo, is harder than the one thousand. Right. Why? I don't know if it's lack of sleep or the fact that you are pushing physically a bit harder in the River Quest because it is only two and a bit days. Maybe it's hard in the thousand to push hard because you know the distance is there and you don't want to blow up on day three. Because I, yeah, it's it, yeah. I, I and there is obviously the one thousand. You have to be uh, in a partner team, so that mm-hmm. you have to do just a pair. So that's different. Okay. Uh, so you have the support of another person. Now, having done all these other races solo, how did you how did you manage that one different? Well, in some cases, I didn't. I think my partner would say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, we trained together here in Sydney, Steve and I, because he was—he ended up, we, we met each other by accident through a friend to do it together, and then we found out we were actually in the same club, we just never bumped into each other. So we trained together here, and so we worked out some of the, the foibles together. We were pretty sure that we were going to be fine, because uh, that bit's important, the partnership piece. Then Steve, Steve hurt his back, I think, at the end of day three or middle of day three, and that became quite an issue later on in the race because uh, you don't, that's one of the differences, I suppose, with the 1,000. You don't get a chance to heal if you get hurt. So there did become a point where I was doing more of the work, leading the navigation piece and doing a bit more of the paddling because of his back. And that I actually switched into solo mode then, and I don't know if that was the right choice to make. I suspect I made it because I felt under pressure. And it might have been better to, to try and work out a way together to achieve it. But I certainly felt the last day or so that I was more of a solo paddler in a team. But that's my comfort zone. I think I went back to it as a comfort zone perspective. Rather than if someone had been, I've got a few friends who are consummate tandem paddlers. And I think they would have made a different decision or acted differently than I did. So yes, I'm definitely a sort of soloist in a tandem team in that race. But it's such a such a cool place to race. You're so far from anywhere. And you look around, there's nothing. And there's nothing for miles. And it's not a scary sense for me. It was just a really 
awesome sense of being places that very few people get to go. The 1000 is definitely different in that way. Is people who live there travel up and down the river, but there aren't that many people who live there. There aren't that many people who go down there as tourists. So it's just a really cool space to be. And I'm not 100% sure it's a race all the time either. More of a, it's an experience. a quest or an experience. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Will you do that one again? I need to. I need a big bank to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Not in the not in the the race setup. I think there are parts of that river that are so beautiful. I'd want to go with a bunch of friends, hire some canoes from Whitehorse, and at least do the bit to Circle, sorry to Eagle. That's really beautiful, all the way from Whitehorse to Eagle, and then you can jump out on the road, um, but camp with your friends and maybe do a bit of fishing. It's okay. just such a gorgeous bit of river. I would like to get to the ocean. Again, I think it'd be better as a, a trip with a couple of mates, I think maybe two, three boats, meet up in the evenings. So have your own experience a bit, but with people who could paddle well, so you're not just drifting down the river, so you don't, and try and do it in, say, 20 or 22 days. Then it'd be worthwhile. There is a bit that of me. I always want to know what's around the next bend. So that's interesting for for someone with a racer mindset and that performance mindset. You say you would do that again, do that stretch of river again, but not in the same way, and do it on a more casual basis with friends. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I, I also think it's very hard to get your head around a thousand mile race from a race attitude. And as as well, if I, if it was going to be a race, I'd need to have a fast. Well, I'd move to canoe, for start at a kayak. I'd want to race with the fastest set of boats I could get. And then I'd want people who want to race. Uh, my experience of the thousand is, of all the people who are in that, a few people want to race. The majority of the people are there for the expedition. They're not racers. So for me, it doesn't have the vibe of a race. Okay. So the intensity isn't there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I know you can create that yourself, but I'm a lot less interested in that. Like I'm competitive in my own space, but I'm, I want to be able to be competitive against others too. And if you're in a field and... 60% of the field is not racing, then it's not the same vibe. All right. Now, you've transitioned, and I shouldn't say transitioned, but you've added to your your uh, ultra portfolio, I guess you might say, trail running, you said. Yes. So how did that passion come about? Well, the same way as the Yukon River Quest, I discovered a race called the Canadian Death Race. So anything that's got that kind of name is going to make me a bit interested. <laughs> so I went and read about it. And I, I don't have any experience running or trail running. I mean, I like going out and hiking, but I have no concept of what elevation means, really, or how long it could take you to run up a hill or run down or not, for that matter. And it was only a few weeks after Yukon Riverquest, I could hop over and see my family in the UK, and then I could hop back and do that race. And it was in the foothills of the Rockies, just northern Alberta, friends in Alberta. I'm like, oh, I should just do that. And because they don't have too many people from aboard doing it, they kept a space open for me and so until the last minute, which was really nice of them. And then I just decided to train and see if I could run. Now, I'm not a runner at all. I don't have any technique. I don't really know how to go up and down. I'm a very good walker. I can walk uphill really quickly. I've got big legs. So I was just having fun being outdoors. It was just another way to train. I was really enjoying it. And then I got to the race and realised I had absolutely no idea what it meant to run up and up a hill <laughs> or well in my case couldn't even run up let alone run down all right but it's definitely a little bit of a bug so i'm trying to work out my next race as, as we speak 
you get it you got to tell me the canadian death race what what's what's it about <laughs> so it's 118 kilometers with two major climbs it's centered around this little town called grand cache which is just north of grand prairie so the northern part of alberta into the rocky foothills of the rockies and it's you can run relays as well for it. i think it's five legs and each leg's got a, a cut-off, and you go up and down these hills, back into the town, and round, and there's the, the near-death is the marathon, and then the death race is the full one. And a friend asked me before I went why I didn't just enter the marathon as a test, and I remember to this day explicitly going, well, of course I can do a marathon, so why would I do it? <laughs> and I think that encapsulates why I do races. I only do races I, do not, I don't know if I can do. I have an expectation of finishing, but I don't know if I can race them. Okay. Now, I didn't finish the Canadian Death Race. I timed out. I was an hour too slow to finish leg two, I think it was. Uh, yeah, at least an hour. They don't give you an official time if you don't finish, and my Garmin died at eight and three-quarter hours, so I'm guessing a bit. Which was a good job, because I'm pretty sure my legs would have given way under me probably 20 yards out of the next um, leg. It was a very interesting curve about how far you can hit pain, which you don't get in canoeing, or at least I've never had in canoeing. I've never had pain that was really difficult to push through. I've had discomfort, but in the running races, I got pain that was challenging. And I definitely had an interesting mindset moment. So it was quite a hot day, but I'd been in, in Canada and the UK in the summer, so I was very accustomed to the heat. And obviously having come from Australia, I'm quite good at it now all these races were struggling and i was having no issue or anything in the heat but i'd had to change my food source for the race because i'd used all my other food in the yukon river quest and i use liquid nutrition a brand called spiz so i'd run out so i'd had to switch my food on race day and you know you're not supposed to do those things yeah. and off i went and then i discovered i didn't like the taste so i wasn't drinking it and i didn't really take enough food to eat because i hadn't I hadn't realised that food consumption in a running race was different from food consumption in a 61-hour canoeing race, um, or even a 50-hour canoeing race. And the death race is a 24-hour race, so you, you have to finish. So I hadn't made the leap of intuition that my food needed to consumption needed to be higher. So I was on the same level of food consumption as the Quest. I was probably also fairly tired, I suppose, after it, it was only a few weeks later. And I also didn't eat my... I didn't drink my liquid nutrition. So... I probably didn't help myself at any point. And then we came to the last descent, which is just above Grand Cash. And to then, I'd had a really good point. I knew I'd fallen behind, but my timing, I hadn't been as precise with my timing, so I wasn't sure if I was missing the cutoff or anything. And then it's a five-kilometer run down the end of the hill to the town. But as you come over the lip of the hill, you see down what's called the, I think it's called a powder line? Power, power line. It's one of these, um, it's, well, it's literally where they power cable goes up and down mm -hmm. and it's a straight track down the hill and as you look down grand cash is right at the bottom but that's what you see you don't see a nice undulating path you just see what looked like well to me it looked like a 45 65 even degree slope and i started going down it thinking i'd roll to the bottom and you'd never see me again <laughs> and it was a really interesting mindset moment when i suddenly i was getting passed by all these people I'd passed on the way up who were running down it like a gazelle and I'm stumbling down it like I don't know what 
And I stepped off the path to let someone through and I had this moment in my head of, you just can't do this. You just, you need to make a decision. Are you going to risk everything and hurl yourself down? And and then the worst case scenario is I break a leg, you can't fly home, does my insurance cover me? Having all those, and that's when you know your mind's gone. You're, you're already done. Your mind's given up on you. And you said it earlier. And there's nothing my body's going to do. And I was in quite a lot of pain in my hip flexors. They were not happy. Uh, my legs were shaking, but my mind was just like, you're not doing this. So it probably took me an hour to get down that hill. And I don't know, probably more, to be honest. And then at the bottom, I started running again. But I, I was already out of time by that point. But it was a very interesting experience from the... My mind definitely gave up in a way, didn't give up in any other race. All right. Will you do it again? Oh, yeah, I didn't finish. i got to go back. <laughs> All right, will you do the... I've got to learn to run downhill, though. <laughs> <laughs> will you do the Barkley? Oh, that looks crazy, doesn't it? I watched the first... It was quite a while ago, the very first documentary they made about it when it was only just coming out of the running world and people knew about it. That would be an adventure, wouldn't it? That would be. So for for listeners who aren't familiar, I won't go into detail, uh, Google Barkley Marathons. And you'll learn all about it. It's a it's an interesting concept. So what is next for you, Esther? So I have made a list of races up until 2027 to try and fit them in. I feel like I really, I sort of want a year off and then I go and do all the races I want to do. Well, nothing's for certain for the next 12 months or so, really. There's a race here in, I think, six or seven weeks, the Hawkesbury Canoe Classic, which is 111 kilometres, and it's an overnight race, so it's mostly in the dark, on the Hawkesbury River. My club do that here. So I'll do that. I don't know what boat I'll do it in yet, and I will be woefully undertrained, but it'll be a great fun anyway. So that's a warm-up type race. I won't worry too much about, well, I will want to perform well, but I am not. I know I haven't trained for it because I'm still... I still haven't picked training really back up after the summer. So that's race one. Then there's a potential to go and do the devices to Westminster in a tandem canoe with a friend. So that's in the UK, 125 miles, I think it is, mm-hmm. with 96 or so portages on the canal and then a section on the, the River Thames. But I learned to paddle on the Thames, so I have no worries about any of that. So that's an option. I still want to do two more Yukon River Quests because that will get me to seven and then I'll get my membership of the Great River Club. So they're, they're options. There's a, if I do go over and do the Yukon River Quest, there's another running race over there, that, a shorter one, 50 miles, that I'll try and do just to keep my hand in. And what else is there? Well, that's probably it. If I did the Devizes and the Yukon, they'd be my two A races of oh, the year. Because right. I want to get to a point when I can have two or three A races in a season. That I really put effort into. What I don't have is something different. I mean, the, the devices to Westminster, if we do that in a tandem canoe, that'll be pretty different. But it is also only 24 hours. So I am thinking, is there something else I want to do? And if so, what is that? Is it... I'd really like to do um, a big mountain bike race, but I'm a little worried that I'll injure myself. So I think I have to wait to do mountain biking until I've finished what I want in canoe first. So the Cape Backpack is in your future then? Who knows? Who Uh, knows? All right. All right. (laughs) So if anyone has any races they want to suggest to me that are long and difficult, then I'd be absolutely up for that. All right. Well, we'll see what our listeners can come up with for you. Uh, What message might you have as an accidental racer to other potential accidental racers? 
don't overthink it too much uh, would be, I suppose, my advice. And then the second one is, if your friends tell you not to do it, you almost certainly should. I'm definitely a proponent of going further than you think you should go, rather than, and a good example would be someone like do a 5k, do a 10k, do a half marathon, do a marathon. I'm not a fav- in favour of that approach at all. Jump straight to the marathon. Do the thing you want to do, and then find a way to get ready for it. And just, just believe that you can do it. Don't worry about the sort of how. Just sit there and go, this is something I really want to do, so I know I can do it. And it'll be hard, but it doesn't matter that it's hard. Something that my one of my clubs here, a lot of people look at me with as if I'm so different that they can't be what I am. And that's rubbish. If you really want to, if it's important to you, and you want to do ultra or long races or short races, you can just do them. There isn't anything stopping you. That's what I'd say. Don't ever believe you can't do something. Find that big, hairy, audacious goal and drive everything towards it. Exactly. All right. And it's, as, long as, as long as it's big for you, that's all that matters. You're not relative to anyone else. Good advice. Where can people find you? So both Twitter and Instagram. So my uh, handle is Wheeler Est, just E-S-T. So my surname, first name. Instagram, I'm a bit more social paddling. Twitter's a bit of both and a bit of work. Those are the two best ways I, um, to get hold of me. Okay. Well, we will include links to uh, to those in the show notes, and then uh, I'll uh, connect with you offline and see if we have any other references that uh, you might have. I know you mentioned a couple of folks uh, along the way here who may have helped you, and we'll see if uh, we can mm. have them help others as well. So I appreciate your time. This has been wonderful uh, learning what's around that next bend and uh, and learning about some of the motivations that uh, that you've had and some of the mindsets that have helped you get to these amazing places and have these great experiences. So one final question that I have for you, and it's a question that we ask all of our guests here on the show, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? So there's two people. They were really important when I started to learn to sea kayak in London, Tower Hamlets. So Natalie Madarova and Mikhail Madeira, a Czech couple, background in climbing and, and sea kayaking. They've done all kinds of wonderful things from a paddling perspective. But more importantly for me and for quite a few others at the club, they made such a difference to us, uh, our learning journeys. And all of us almost in the club have started paddling as adults, typically 30s, 40s, even even later and the two of them were so, and still are, in fact, so good at working with people and supporting them, and not just to get better, but to have new experiences. They'd be really interesting, I think, uh, and I, I think a lot of people would really love to hear from them. Super. Well, I will connect with you offline. We'll uh, get a hold of uh, Natalie and Michael and see if we can get them on the show. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, I appreciate your time. This has been great learning from you, and uh, I'm certainly our, our listeners will enjoy hearing from you. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on board, John. It's been really uh, fun chatting to you. Great. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, 
protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Esther brings some great insights that we can apply across different paddling disciplines and life in general, even if we're not racing. Simply recognizing that there's a problem, asking yourself to stop in that moment and determine how to fix the problem can be a real key to just making a resolution. Many of us have also probably dealt with the feeling of being lost after coming back from a big experience, and finding a purpose following that event is critical. I certainly hope you enjoyed hearing from Esther as much as I did. A big thanks to our partners at Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending special offers to you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com. Use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. And visit onlineseakayaking.com to take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next guest is Katie Carr, and Katie recently released a book titled Moderate Becoming Good Later about her brother Toby's quest to paddle all the areas of what's known as the shipping forecast. Tune in to learn more about Toby's legacy and her plan to complete it. Until then, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue.
Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.